This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. Never before has attention been such a precious resource. So on May 19, 2015, the New York Institute for the Humanities held a discussion titled Distracted, Attention in the Digital Age. Moderated by Virginia Heffernan, the panelists were Winifred Gallagher, David Mikich, Mark Edmondson, and Matthew B. Crawford. Good evening. My name is Eric Banks. I'm director of the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU. And it is my pleasure to to welcome you all here this evening. The name of tonight's panel is Distracted, Attention in the Digital Age. Our panelists tonight will speak of distraction and a host of other shadow ideas with which it is concerned, from attention to absorption and from numerous points of entry. I have felt invigorated by their various perspectives and I'm glad to have them all join us tonight. We're especially fortunate to welcome here tonight our moderator, Virginia Heffernan, who has written astutely about the perils and promises of paying attention in the digital age. It's a little bit of a cliche, but we have a great lineup tonight. Matthew Crawford is a senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture and a fabricator of components for custom motorcycles. His best-selling book, Shop Class as Soulcraft, an inquiry into the value of work, has prompted a wide rethinking of education and labor policies in the United States and Europe. His new book, The World Beyond Your Head, On Becoming an Individual in an Age of Distraction, was released in April by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Mark Edmondson is, above all, my former college thesis advisor. Um, And as a sideline, he's a university (laughs) professor at the University of Virginia. He's the author of 10 books, including Literature Against Philosophy, Plato to Derrida, Why Read?, and Why Teach in Defense of a Real Education. His new book, Self and Soul, A Defense of Ideals, will be out this fall from Harvard. Winifred Gallagher is a journalist who investigates questions about human behavior. Her books include New, Understanding Our Need for Novelty and Change, Wrapped, Attention and the Focused Life, a New York Times bestseller, House Thinking, Just the Way You Are, and The Power of Place. David Mikix is the author of Slow Reading in a Hurried Age. His other recent books are The Annotated Emerson and with Stephen Burt, The Art of the Sonnet, both from Harvard. His book, Bellows People, will be published by Norton in 2016. So without any more yammering, I give you Winifred Gallagher. I'd like to talk about distraction by talking about attention because distraction is really anti-attention. Attention is spotlighting a compelling stimulus, whether it's a stop sign or a stab of jealousy, and suppressing competing stimuli. 
It's the key to controlling your experience and changing your life. As William James put it, my experience is what I agree to attend to. The idea that your life is the sum of the material objects and mental subjects that you focus on is not some fanciful notion, but a physiological fact. Let's do a little experiment. Focus on my hand for a couple of seconds. Neuroscientists have discovered what just went on in your brain when you looked at my hand. They found that attention is a process of selection in which your brain highlights or photographs a compelling sight or sound in your internal or external world and suppresses the rest. If you were looking at my hand, if, if a clown came walking down the side of the room and quietly took a seat in the first row, chances are very good that you would not have noticed. There have actually been fascinating experiments to that effect. So when you're paying attention, you're not just focusing on one thing, you're suppressing everything else. It's selective. Attention's great benefit is turning the vast world into your smaller world, but it has a drawback. That little piece of reality that you zero in on is far more fragmented and subjective than you might assume. If you look back over your years, you'll see that if you had paid attention to other things, your reality, your life, and yourself could be quite different. The same dynamic applies to the future that you create. As the expression pay attention suggests, you have a limited supply of this mental money to spend over your lifetime. How will you choose to invest it? Your answers help shape your brain, your world, and your experience. To ensure our survival, Homo sapiens evolved two ways of focusing. Involuntary, bottom-up attention asks, what's the obvious thing to zero in on here? Right now, me talking. Could it be a wailing siren or flashing red lights? Any stimulus of that nature that demands that you pay attention to it. But voluntary top-down attention asks, what do I want to concentrate on? Do I want to concentrate on the racket on the street or the work I'm trying to do? The jealous thought or the peaceful thought? Top-down attention lets you choose what you focus on and thereby choose your experience. So a distraction is simply a stimulus that interferes with your deployment of top-down attention. As soon as you pay attention to the distraction, you're, you're trying to work, but suddenly you see a pop-up for a catalog sale at L.L. Bean on your screen and you start paying attention to L.L. Bean, it's not a distraction anymore because you have allowed that stimulus to capture your attention. During the serious illness that led me to research and write Wrapped, I saw that the power to focus on one thought rather than another is especially crucial when dealing with the negative stuff in life, whether it's events, ideas, emotions. We naturally pay more attention to fear and sadness than to pleasant feelings because they cause pain, which motivates us to solve the underlying cause. When you're upset by a quarrel, it moves you to make amends. If you're angered by injustice, you protest. In those cases, focusing on something negative is useful. 
Often, however, we end up stuck on painful or destructive thoughts and feelings that serve no problem-solving purpose. You know the sort. I'll never lose those five pounds. So-and-so gets all the lucky breaks. To protect your experience, you've got to focus away from these useless thoughts to more productive and positive ideas. I'll lose the weight if I go to the gym. People who work hard make their own breaks. They're not just more pleasant, they're more practical because they literally expand your world. Research has shown that your visual field actually broadens to enable you to see the big picture and consider more options if you've been primed by something positive to think about. In contrast, negative feelings literally shrink your visual and conceptual reality, which contracts to whatever makes you feel bad. We've all experienced that when something bad happens, it seems like it's the only thing that's ever happened to you. Research on neuroplasticity shows that your brain and behavior can be changed by what you attend to and experience. One example, navigating London's maze of streets enlarges a taxi driver's hippocampus, which is a part of the brain that's involved in spatial processing and memory. Similarly, attentional workouts, most of which are derived from meditation, can modify your brain and make you more focused, engaged, and perhaps even kinder. There are two basic types. Single-pointed attention to a target, the familiar thing of paying attention to your breath, which is shown to improve your ability to concentrate in daily life. And research, uh, a lot of it conducted with Buddhist monks, suggests that meditating on compassion can actually also increase your capacity for fellow feeling. An attentional practice can even fine-tune your temperament, which is your personality's biological foundation. Some of us are born with an upbeat disposition, and that correlates with greater activation in certain left prefrontal brain regions. But other people can acquire the same activation and positive focus through attentional training. The point is not to try to feel happy all the time, which would be futile and grotesque, but to focus on what makes you feel and function well. Even during a health or a financial crisis, good and beautiful things can be happening too. The joy and meaning you find in life and your current stressor are two separate issues, and you can attend appropriately to both. As Shujal Rinpoche, a Tibetan Lama and a University of Wisconsin meditation research subject says, whether in meditation or daily life, we try to pay attention to just being present rather than being caught between hope and fear, which is the mind's usual condition. In daily life, rapt attention, whether to work, relationships, or recreation, makes the difference between passing the time and time well spent. Focus is essential to the, pre, to the peak experience or flow state that kicks in when you concentrate on challenging but enjoyable activities. The best recipe for human happiness that I've ever encountered is called just manageable difficulty. People are happiest, they're in flow or in peak experience when they have a task that is almost perfectly matched to their abilities. If it's too hard, it becomes stressful. If it's too easy, it's boring. So you want that line of just manageable difficulty. Wrapped attention is crucial to creativity, as our little experiments with my hand suggest, and it was actually devised by William James. Focusing on something, whether it's a tune or a face or a conversation, makes it more interesting and engaging. 
as James says, that's what the genius does in whose hands a given topic coruscates and grows. Attention is as important to love as to work. It's the bottom line in any relationship. But the way attention works means that that little slice of life that you zero in on is far more fragmented and subjective than you think. And that's why when spouses list the past week's events, dinners, fights, sex, problems with a child, whatever, the percentage of a pair's agreement is at the level of mere chance. I love that. Thanks to attention's me mechanics, the common expression, you live in a different world, which we sometimes say in, we're vexed, is the simple truth, which is one reason why communication is vital in relationships. Everyone has occasional attention problems, some of which are normal. Some useful things to bear in mind are these. All minds wander, perhaps 20% of the time. Merely by focusing on something, a new car, losing a job, whatever, good or bad, we exaggerate its importance. And no matter how great or terrible it is, we'll soon get used to it. We focus on our thoughts about experience, our thoughts about experience, vacationing in a new place is good, rather than the experience itself. I really enjoy going to the same old beach place. We forget that you really must pay attention to that person's name or your new PIN number to learn and remember it. If you do not pay attention, you cannot learn and you will not remember. When you need to focus, avoid interruptions because rebooting your brain takes 20 minutes. Work for 90 minutes, then do something else. If your attention fades, have some coffee, walk around, then re refocus on your target and try to notice some new things about it. In our age of cell phones and websites, it's important to understand that multitasking is a myth. When you try to focus on two things at once, phoning while checking your email, you're simply switching rapidly between them, which makes you less efficient and more error prone. I gave a talk at Microsoft a while ago and people came, they could watch in their offices, but a lot of them came to an auditorium and a lot of the people who came to the auditorium brought their laptops. And the chief of research made them fill out a questionnaire asking them some really very basic questions about my talk on the way out and then they had to submit them. And the people who were on the laptop got like Ds and Fs. They thought they were there, but they really weren't there. Your electronics are your servants, not your masters. Don't let them choose your focus. Regarding more serious attention problems, scientists still don't understand exactly what ADHD is, what causes it, or how to test for it objectively. The decision to medicate a child especially is fraught, but the brain of a child who's not attending to important activities in school is not being remodeled by experience as that brain should be. Problematic attention patterns obtain across the spectrum of mental disorders. Depressed people focus on the negative things that make them feel hopeless and helpless. The anxious zero in on threats, hypochondriacs on symptoms. Cognitive behavioral therapy addresses these skewed attention patterns, just simply tries to get people to realize they'll feel better if they pay attention to different things. Since writing Wrapped, I've learned that taking charge of your attention helps you to control your experience, increases your concentration, expands your boundaries, and lifts your spirits. Most important, Wrapped experience being completely absorbed whether it's in a sunset or a song, 
project or a person simply makes life worth living. You cannot always be happy, but you can almost always be focused, which is as close as we can get. Thank you. David Mickix. Is our current disease too much distraction or too much attention? It can be hard to decide. Take the instance, sadly familiar to most of us, of the nightmare internet session. Where did those two hours just go? Some of it must have been butterflying from one random page to another, that's distraction, but some of it was surely the result of too much attention, of the monomaniacal kind, pursuing every last variant of, for instance, a reasonably priced espresso machine. <laughs> and weighing obsessively the likely flaws and virtues of each one, as reported by that hydra-headed beast, the consumer reviews. This is an example from my own life, by the way. In, in the end, no espresso machine was purchased. <laughs> we tend to think of distraction as the devouring monster, the specter of wasted hours, time frittered away, but attention of the obsessive kind that the net seems to encourage is just as much a culprit for the theft of those two hours that will never return. We like to picture attention as good. It means productive, satisfying, focused work and distraction as bad. But is it really so? Of course, it's possible to flip the terms distraction, good attention, bad. Here I want to introduce a passage I read almost exactly 40 years ago. I was about 14 at the time, in which distraction is shown to be spiritually superior to attention. This appealed to me tremendously at the time, but I'm more dubious about it now. It's from a book by Walker Percy called The Moviegoer. This is also pretty much all I remember from the book, but I remembered it very distinctly. And sure enough, when I Googled it, it was still there. The hero of the novel was a sort of um, drifter, slacker, daydreamer, if I remember correctly, is in college. And he and his partner, Harry, are running an experiment in a lab, in a chemistry lab, on pH levels in pig blood. The narrator uh, named Binks Bowling uh, says this, a peculiar thing happened. I became extraordinarily affected by the summer afternoons in the laboratory. The August sunlight lay in yellow bars throughout the room. For minutes at a stretch, I sat on the floor and watched the motes rise and fall in the sunlight. I called Harry's attention to the presence, but he shrugged and went on with his work. He was actually like one of those scientists in the movies who don't care about anything but the problem in their heads. Now here is a fellow who does have a flair for research and will be heard from. But he's no more aware of the mystery which surrounds him than a fish is aware of the water it swims in. Who could be more boring than industrious Harry with his piddly results? By contrast, we have the first person narrator, daydreaming, distractible. He is a distinctive person, a person of imagination. Of course, you can see why the paragraph from Walker Percy uh, appealed for me so powerfully at age 14. It seemed to suggest that by idly staring into space during chem lab, I could become the slacker hero of an autobiographical novel. I was perhaps needless to say terrible at chemistry. But the thing is kind of a fake, or at least misleading. Percy's hero, Binks Bowling, could never have written the moviegoer. Writers daydream, but then they work on their daydreams. They follow them up. And scientists are not actually like Harry. They are not afflicted with tunnel vision. 
A good scientist might even be investigating those dust motes. So rather than simply claiming that distraction could be good and creative or that attention could be dull-minded in the way that Walker Percy's narrator does, I want to turn to two figures from cultural history, one highly distractible and the other highly attentive, and show how both of these figures are atonic these days. That is something to think about and admire. The distractible one is the flaneur. The attentive one is the Holmesian detective, that is the Sherlock Holmesian detective. The flaneur, for example, in the works of uh, Charles Baudelaire, as described by Walter Benjamin, the flaneur is the stroller, the idler, wandering and wandering his way through the streets of Paris, drinking in little events, small spectacles, the little things of the city that become rich with significance. That's the distractible character. The attentive character, by contrast, is the Holmesian detective. And it might strike you that nothing could be more opposed than these two. There's a passage, um, I think it's in a study in Scarlet, I'm not sure, where uh, Holmes talks about the mind as, a, as an attic. And he says that uh, you cannot just stuff any old thing into this attic. That's why he, for example, doesn't even know that the earth revolves around the sun. He knows nothing about the most basic matters if they're irrelevant to his love, that is, detection. If the mind is an attic, Holmes says, each thing in it should be carefully chosen and ready to hand. A workman's tools, nothing more. The detective needs solitude, along with his pipes of tobacco, his cocaine, both signs of obsessive intellection. He needs to take his time this is the respect with which I want to ally him to the flaneur, who also takes his time or her time. Both of these characters have a distinctive rhythm, a personal rhythm, an intimate rhythm. Instead of letting time master them or compel them, they do the mastering. And this, I think, or something like this, is what's missing on the internet as it's currently used. This is a point that's been made, uh, I think, very convincingly by uh, Jaron Lanier, a computer scientist and writer, the net seems to impose a rhythm on us. It's not an expressive rhythm. Clicking on links is, for example, the rhythm of day trading or of gambling. It offers the illusion of mastery or of control. This is something that Matt has written about recently. But it doesn't offer actual mastery. It offers no possibility for the creative. What we need and what Jaron Lanier suggests we need in his... Um, in his writing on the subject, is something more personal, something which we can use to express ourselves. Just as you cannot be a flaneur from the window of a speeding car, so you cannot stroll through the internet. Instead, the web is a place to get things done. And all too often, it seems to be controlling us. It seems to be rigidly or strictly engineering us rather than the reverse. It's easy to sort of fall into the mode that I think of as uh, kids nowadays. In other words, yes, our experience, our existence has been somehow tampered with, with damaged, even ruined by the current technology. I don't think that's true. But I, I do think that a, a, major, a major revision, a major reworking of things in our head, and perhaps also within technology itself, is, is necessary. It would be silly to say that the internet makes us mechanical, addictive, mere pawns, and so on. 
But on the other hand, it certainly has a role to play. And so what I hope we can do, I hope this conversation helps, is to somehow point the way forward to a, a way that we might think more creatively and more personally about the possibilities of technology now. Thanks. Mark Edmondson. Okay, so uh, this is uh, called Where Did Attention Go? It is a little on the oblique side, approaches indirectly, but it's all true. Or it's not all true, at least it's pretty short. So, <laughs> um, Once upon a time, or a time rather long ago, I found myself teaching a course with a renowned philosopher who might better be described as an anti-philosopher, I suppose, Richard Rorty. Rorty was given to quick and cutting diagnoses of one thing and another. Some might call the technique reduction. I was more inclined to think of it as intensification. This particular piece of intensification came in the service or at the expense of one Jacques Derrida. Try thinking of Derrida, Rorty said, using a favorite formulation of his, as offering a polemic against closure. A polemic against closure. What exactly did that mean? Derrida was prone to think that writing was so important because it illustrated a common condition of experience. It went on and on. The writing at hand refers to other writing, writing of the past, and writing to come. It spreads out metonymically in every direction, picking up ever more associations, gathering various significations which never resolve themselves into finite and specific meaning because there are always more significations out there to connect with. And naturally, those significations branch out interminably in their turn. Derrida and his followers liked things that were interminable. They smiled when they heard Freud say that in truth, psychoanalysis was never over. There were always new dreams, new slips of the tongue, new slides of the pen, new neuroses, new lurches at health that never, of course, hit the mark. There was also something else to interpret. You could never gather a text into one round ball and say with satisfaction, even exhausted satisfaction, this is what it is. This is what it means. And of course, it had to be true, we all knew as much, that Derrida was talking about more than texts. There is nothing outside the text, his most famous utterance, I suppose, suggested that the very best metaphor for almost any significant form of experience was indeed textual. Events referred to other events in history and through time. Your car referred to other cars and could not be understood in isolation because there had been so many cars and would be so many more, the labor of connect the cars would never end. The argument that you had with your spouse before you came to the talk tonight, she was right, she might have stayed home and paid attention to something else, refers to other such fights, yours and your parents and their parents and so on back to Adam and Eve. Did Adam and Eve have the first marital spat? Derrida would have found a way to demonstrate that this was not so. I'm not sure how, I'm not sure now anyone around here could do this either. This is maybe why I miss him so much. Derrida's non-affirming affirmation of the text resonated with Dumas' affection for allegory over the symbol, Lacan's sense of desire as metonymic, and Foucault's version of power as a force within existence that was everywhere with a center that was nowhere. Rorty, who got this discussion started, told me boldly once they didn't care about all that metonymy going on all over the place. He liked the dialectic, he said, the play of finite boundaries, and that was that. He said it, though he did say it in a sort of secret agent whisper voice. The point is coming. I used to think people like Derrida and Demand were inaugurating something. They were leading us away from past errors into future truths or anti-truths. But now I'm more inclined to think that they were reflecting something much more than they were initiating it. What were they reflecting? They were, I think, reflecting an age when people's minds wouldn't stay still. They were reflecting a time when the movement of the intelligence was unstillable. 
I think Derrida and the rest were trying to make a virtue out of a certain kind of necessity. People couldn't find focus, totality, wholeness, what have you. So why not champion the opposite? Why not affirm the free play of difference or the movement of the signifier or whatever you happen to favor as a term? If I'm right, and this is only a hypothesis to be sure, what made people disposed to think in a centrifugal manner? Though to be sure it was a centrifugalism without a center, centers being quite forbidden by Derrida and his followers, it's very hard to summarize for his reasons. Now it would be handy to say that Derrida was spawning to the age of the computer and the video game and all the rest. He might be seen as trying to understand it in a manner except what we now call attention deficit disorder. The problem is the computers weren't much of anything culturally. On the day in 1966, the Derrida arrived at Johns Hopkins and gave his paper on structure, sign, and play in the discourse of the human sciences. I, for what it's worth, was 14 years old at the time. But if what I'm saying is so, and the metonymy crowd was trying to make a virtue of necessity, they're trying to make that virtue of necessity that predated computers and what we call the culture of distraction and the culture of ADD. They were, I dare say, reflecting and helping to confirm a culture in which people could not focus their minds because they could not find anything worthwhile to focus them upon. What does it mean to focus your mind? What does it mean, perhaps this is a better way to say it, to focus your being? Well, if you're a student of Freud, as Derrida in fact one, part of what focusing your being means is somehow overcoming the disjunctions of the psyche. It's no news. From the vantage of Freud, human beings are not whole. We are internally split into two parts. No, in 1914, he disclosed to us that we were cut into three. Ego, superego, and it. It hurts to be cut in three, especially when each of the parts wants something different, which Freud, of course, affirms they do. How do you overcome fragmentation? How do you staunch the pain of being three and not one? Well, you get drunk, says Freud. That glues things together, if only for a while, you feel whole. That's drunkenness in Freud, making the three parts of the psyche stick together temporarily and get along with each other. You get drunk or you fabricate inebriation. There are other ways to solve the disjunction that Freud confirms and that Derrida tries to make the best of. For Freud, the disjunction is a form of pain, but you have to live with it. To Derrida, disjunction can be greatly pleasurable once you get the hang of it. He calls it play. But there are many forms of inebriation in life, some alcoholic, some not. Love is inebriation, if you ask Freud. So is creation, and sometimes even the perception of art. Religion is surely a form of inebriation for the analyst, as are most collective movements, especially if they have a leader attached to them. One indulges in these illusions at a cost. One is deceived or self-deceived by God, by leader, or by love, and then faces the consequences. The hangover from fair love, this is Freud, the hangover from fair love is not sweet, nor from religious disillusionment, nor from political failure of a certain dramatic sort. The morning after of Germany, from about a dozen years of mid-century inebriation, lasts, I believe, to this day. Stay sober, says Freud. Accept fragmentation. Accept a being that is always fractured, wayward, unfocused, except anxiety. Revel in fragmentation, says Derrida. Use it to stimulate motion, variety, difference, and play. Derrida takes off from Freud. He tries to help us live in a land where fragmentation is the name of the game. 
This fragmentation does not owe to video games or cell phones or too much flat screen TV. Rather, it owes to a world in which those forces and entities that have unified human beings now seem able to do so no more. It owes to a world in which those forces and entities that have unified human beings now seem able to do so no more. If you have no faith in religion or art or politics or love, you will live, presumably, in a world of fragmentation. You won't have anything that you can trust to focus your whole being. You will not have any legitimate access to the unification of the self unless you think of getting drunk as a legitimate way to solve your existential dilemmas. You will encourage and fund the culture that allows you to participate in an outer life that is as turbulent as your inner life. You will seek for and find the kind of corroboration of your own inner dispersal that Derrida tried not to find, but to create through his ingenious and more than ingenious interpretive exertions. Our culture of distraction, it is not a culture that has risen up to overthrow ideals. It is, I think, a culture that reflects a human state in which the ideals, love, compassion, courage, the pursuit of truth, have already been overthrown. As long as there's nothing worth focusing on in our culture and in our souls, we will continue to live in a world of distraction. Allowing one's attention to run amok is perhaps a way of reacting to a crisis of ethics and meaning. Resolve that crisis in a plausible way, and many of our epiphenomenal concerns about distraction and displacement and the rule of the random will probably recede. Perhaps they will even melt away. But that is easier by far to talk about than to do. Thank you. Matthew Crawford. Um, I'm going to be sort of speaking out of this book I wrote that's about attention as a cultural problem. And it's very synthetic. It draws in lots of different kinds of um, literatures. But uh, for my 10 minutes, I'm going to zero in on something very narrow, and it's going to be kind of political. So I was in a supermarket a few years ago, and I swiped my bank card to pay for my groceries, and you've got the little screen that you watch intently, waiting for it to prompt you to do the next steps. And so in those intervals between swiping my card and um, entering my PIN and confirming the amount, I was shown advertisements on the little screen because some genius had figured out that a person in that situation is a captive audience. And the intervals themselves, I previously assumed, were just an artifact of the communication technology. But now it kind of felt like they were something more deliberately calibrated because these haltings now serve somebody's interest. There was a moment when, you know, I guess I had a gestalt shift. I started to see things like that everywhere. It does seem like a new frontier of capitalism has been opened up by our self-appointed disruptors. Uh, speaking of which, just yesterday, I spoke at Google. Um, and in, on this new frontier, you win competitive advantage by being the most aggressive in digging up and monetizing every bit of private headspace. And now, of course, we've developed habits for trying to tune out this stuff. You can bury your face in your own device or whatever it may be. But if you ride the bus in uh, South Korea, you actually have it squirted into your nose. So there's a smell resembling that of Dunkin' Donuts coffee. 
that is released into the ventilation system of the bus as the Dunkin' Donuts jingle plays over the sound system. And this happens just before the bus pulls up outside a Dunkin' Donuts. And the driver points out the fact in case you somehow missed it. There remain many areas for uh, further progress. So all the little permission slips and report cards that a teacher sends home with students are in many school districts still blank on the back. So here's a gross offense against the efficient use of space. But there's one, at least one forward-thinking school district in Massachusetts that now sells ads space on the backs of these slips of paper. I'm making my way through O'Hare Airport, not feeling especially receptive to the message that's on the handrail of the escalator. So on the moving handrail, in an endlessly recurring loop, it says, you're in charge. <laughs> I'm not feeling especially in charge. I get to my gate with an hour to kill, and I can't escape the chattering of CNN. If the TV is within view, I find it very hard not to look at it. The introduction of novelty into your field of view commands what the cognitive psychologists call an orienting response. What happens is an animal turns its face and eyes to the new thing, whatever it may be, which is an important adaptation in a world of predators, right? Because it could be a python. Well, a new thing typically appears about once every second on TV. The images on the screen jump out of the flow and make uh, a demand on us. In their presence, it's hard to rehearse a remembered conversation, for example. Now, alternatively, people in that kind of situation will stare at their phones or open a novel, hoping to tune out the piped-in chatter. But in this battle of attentional technologies, what's lost, I think, is the kind of public space that's required for a certain kind of sociability. A public space where people are not self-enclosed in the heightened way that happens when our minds are elsewhere than our bodies may feel rich with possibility for spontaneous encounters. Even if we don't converse with others, our mutual reticence is experienced as reticence if our attention is not otherwise bound up, but is rather free to alight upon one another and linger or not because we ourselves are free to pay out our attention in deliberate measures. And I think that to be the object of someone's reticence is quite different from not being seen by them. We might have a, a vivid experience of having encountered another person, even um, if in silence. And those kind of encounters are always ambiguous. And their need for interpretation gives rise to a train of imaginings that are often erotic. I think that's what makes cities exciting, Washington Square Park. Now, of course, in that airport scene, you can simply shift in your seat and avert your gaze from the screens. But the fields of view that haven't been claimed for commerce seem to be getting fewer and narrower. The ever more complete penetration of public spaces by attention-getting technologies, which may be very low-tech, nothing, there's nothing inherently digital about turning unavoidable public surfaces into sites of marketing. But in any case, this exploits the orienting response in a way that preempts sociability, directing us away from one another and toward a manufactured reality, the content of which 
is determined from afar by private parties that have a material interest in doing so. Now, in the main currents of psychological research, really for, for the last hundred years, really, attention is treated as a resource. A person has only so much of it. But we don't yet have a political economy corresponding to this resource. I think we need the concept of an attentional commons. So there are some resources that we hold in common, such as the air we breathe and the water we drink. We take them for granted, but their widespread availability makes everything else we do possible. I think the absence of noise is a resource of just this sort. More precisely, the valuable thing that we take for granted is the condition of not being addressed. Just as clean air makes it possible to breathe, silence in this broader sense is what makes it possible to think. And that's no small thing. Now, we give it up willingly when we're in the company of other people that we know, and when we open ourselves to serendipitous encounters with strangers. To be addressed by mechanized means is an entirely different matter. The benefits of silence are off the books. They're not measured directly by a gross domestic product, but surely contribute to creativity and innovation and things that economists do care about. They don't show up in social statistics, such as level of educational achievement, yet one uh, makes use of, uh, consumes isn't quite the right notion here, but one makes use of a great deal of silence in the course of becoming educated. One of the notable features of the gangster-like regimes in many formerly communist countries is the apparent absence or impotence of any notion of a common good. So self-serving party apparatchiks were replaced by or simply became quasi-free market gangsters. And many of the people who live in those countries now find themselves living in the environmental degradation that happens when economic development is left to such interests with no countervailing force of public spiritedness. And so I wonder if we in the liberal societies of the West are headed toward a similar condition with respect to the resource of attention because we don't yet think of it as a resource, or do we? Silence is now offered as a luxury good so in the business class lounge at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris, what you hear is the occasional tinkling of a spoon against China. It's lovely. Uh, I saw no ads on the walls. Uh, there were no TVs. And this silence, I think, is what makes it feel genuinely luxurious. When you walk in and there's these sort of airtight doors that whoosh shut behind you, the difference is nearly tactile. It's like uh, stepping out of hair cloth into satin. Your brow unfurrows itself. Your neck muscles start to relax. And after 20 minutes, you no longer feel exhausted. The hassle lifts. Now, outside the lounge is the usual airport cacophony. Because we've allowed our attention to be monetized, if you want yours back, you're going to have to pay for it. As the commons gets appropriated, one solution for those who have the means is to leave the commons for private clubs, such as the business class lounge. 
Now, consider that it's those in the business lounge who make the decisions that determine the character of the peon lounge, and you might start to see these things in a political light. To engage in playful, inventive thinking, and possibly create wealth for oneself during those idle hours spent at an airport requires silence. But other people's minds over in the peon lounge or the bus can be treated as a resource a standing reserve of purchasing power to be steered according to the innovative and brilliant marketing ideas hatched by those enjoying silence in the business lounge. When some people treat the minds of other people as a resource, this is not creating wealth, as one often hears. It's a transfer of wealth. The ever greater concentration of wealth in a shrinking elite has many complex causes, obviously, but let's just throw one more into the mix for consideration, and that is the ever more aggressive appropriations of the attentional commons that we've allowed to take place. I think this becomes especially pertinent in an era of big data when we find ourselves the objects of attention-getting techniques that are not only pervasive but increasingly well-targeted. There's a lot of talk about a right to privacy in our digital lives. I think we need to sharpen the conceptually murky right to privacy by supplementing it with something like a right not to be addressed. And what shape that would take, I don't know. But this would apply not, of course, to those who address me face to face, to those who never show their face and treat my mind as a resource to be harvested by mechanized means. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.